Okay, guys, let's start. Let's pray, and uh, we shall begin. Chris, it's a good man. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you so much, Lord, that we have your spirit to lead us and guide us, to give us illumination and understanding into all truth, Lord. We pray, God, that you would keep us, Lord, in your word and give us a hunger for your word that never ends, Lord. Uh, we can study hermeneutics. We can talk about exegesis. Lord, we can speak of all these things, Lord, but we just pray that above everything, you'd make us like the psalmist, Lord, in Psalm 1, that meditates on your law day and night so that we could be firmly planted by the rivers of water, so that we could be mature and uh, that we can be growing and that we could be productive in our faith, Lord. Bless our time as we look at uh, this subject of hermeneutics once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, this is the last uh, class that we're doing on the subject of hermeneutics. And the way that I taught uh, this whole subject was really a, a, a triad of, of elements of dealing with hermeneutics. So we dealt with historical issues. We dealt with literary issues. Okay. Uh, remember, history in the Bible has to do with uh, when we talk about historical issues in hermeneutics, we talked about doing historical background, trying to understand the setting, the context in which a book of the Bible is written in, those types of, of, of things, which are really important. Uh, even Jesus, or I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about the Maccabean revolt, and I was thinking about the intertestamental period between the Testaments and just the time that had to develop, you know, 400 years, essentially, from the last prophet to... Uh, John the Baptist and the things that had to happen in order to get to that point and the Zealot Rebellion and uh, the Maccabean Revolt and all of that that was going on and just kind of reminds me of uh, Galatians 4.4 4 where it says, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son born under the law, born of a woman. And so Jesus was not going to be sent just in any period of time. It had to be the fullness of the time. Uh, culture had to develop the Roman Empire had to take over. Everything had to, you know, the world had to be Hellenized. All of that had a role to play in God's redemptive plan. So history having to do with the background, his, the history of the books, what's the situation of the author, what's the situation of the audience, those types of things. And then literature, we, we talked about how that the Bible is a really fascinating book because it contains vast amounts of literature. It has poetic literature. It has historical narrative literature. It has apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature. It has parabolic literature. All of those literary genres, that's what they're called, right? Genres of scripture. The genres of scripture are important because you don't interpret poetry the same way you interpret, let's say, for example, apocalyptic literature. There are different rules. There are different techniques. There are different things that you're looking for when you're doing those types of things. So the last thing... The last thing is theology. Theology. Um, why theology? Because all hermeneutics is for the goal of theology. That is what hermeneutics is all about. Um, theology, and uh, you know, is the goal of interpretation. That is why we engage in exegesis. That is why we engage in knowing something about the original languages, the original context. That's why we want to interpret the Bible faithfully, because based on our interpretation of Scripture comes our theology of Scripture. 
And um, so let me just uh, let me just let's just talk about theology for a minute. And when I talk about the theology of the Bible, there's so much in that. And I want to ask you guys, what do you think I mean when I say the theology of the Bible? Well, what do you think I'm talking about when I talk about the the next component is theology? Am I talking about systematic theology? What am I talking about? Huh? Yes, sir. There's, there's, excuse me, there's biblical theology, but I'm, I'm struggling with the question. Yeah, so hermeneutics is for theology. The question is, what theology are we talking about? Are we talking about systematic theology? Are we talking about biblical theology? Okay, that's, that's different, right? right? We looked at that our very first class. We looked at about just the differences between systematic theology and biblical theology, right? And I would say that the very first thing that you want to start with in terms of theology is the theology that emerges from whatever passage of Scripture, whatever book of Scripture you're interpreting, which in a sense is a subset of biblical theology. So I want to start with <coughs> biblical theology and talk about that before we get to systematic theology. But biblical theology is very important because biblical theology allows us to interpret the Bible in its own context. We're just asking the question, what is the context of the Bible itself? What was, what was you know, we're asking questions about, you know, exegesis, not eisegesis, right? We want to find out what did the authors themselves mean. And so we're asking questions, let's say if you're studying the book of Romans, you're asking the question, what's the theology of Romans? What is the theology coming back to us from the book of Romans? And for that reason, most good commentaries that you have have a section in the introduction that deal with the theology of Romans. And so they'll pull out all the major themes of that book and try to explain to you what the book of Romans is all about. You know, it starts with sin. It moves to... Uh, uh, the Edemic roots of sin. It talks about God and what he did in, in uh, justifying us by faith. It talks about the break of sin, the struggle with sin, the freedom from sin. And then it goes into talking about redemptive history, beginning in Romans 9, with the sovereignty of God, God's uh, uh, working among Israel, his purpose for Israel, and on and on and on the book goes. And that's kind of the theology that you're getting from any book of the Bible that you're doing. Uh, you know, part of what I want to do today is give you guys the tools to study. There's no way we can cover everything, right? So what I want to do is just more or less just make this a time where I gave you a bunch of different books and a bunch of different things to build a big library so you guys can study on your own, you know, because uh, it's really important when you're looking at biblical theology, understand that people do biblical theology in different ways. So, in, in, in one sense, biblical theology has been called testament. Testament theology. Why testament theology? Because you have those that do Old Testament theology and New Testament theology. So they break up the Bible based on the testaments. So, for example, Old Testament theology, you might read a book by Paul House. His specialty is Old Testament theology. So what is he asking there? He is asking, what is the theology of the Old Testament? Before you even come to the New Testament, 
what are you what are you getting out of the Pentateuch? What are you getting out of the writings, the historical writings? What are you getting out of the poetic literature of the Old Testament? What are you getting out of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament? That's what he's doing in Old Testament theology. In the same way, you have those, their focus is New Testament theology. Okay? And so they're asking, how do we understand the theology of the New Testament? What is that all about? You know, seminaries have departments of the New Testament because all they do is study the theology of the New Testament and they study it on its own merit. Now, let's just focus for a minute on New Testament theology. How does, if somebody wants to do a New Testament theology, how do you go about it? How do you go about it? How do you even go about approaching the subject of New Testament theology? It's so vast, right? So how do you do it? Well, there's a, there's a number of ways that you would do that. Uh, you would either go book by book. So you do like a book study. So you would take literally every book of the Bible and you break down that book. You break down the theology of that book. And probably for that, your main guy is going to be D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson's New Testament Introduction is a great book because in every section of that New Testament manual, there's an Old Testament one too, but in that New Testament manual, what he does is he gives you not just the historical setting, he doesn't just outline the book for you, give you the structure of the book, he also gives you the theology of the book at the end of every section. So he tells you what is the theology of the book of Matthew. And he sums it up and he gives you different highlights, okay? Or, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is you focus on the author. You focus on the author. And so maybe the most famous person to do it this way would be a gentleman by the name of Eldon Ladd. Uh, Eldon Ladd. There are many others, but I, I want to focus on Eldon Ladd because he is very foundational to New Testament theology. What Ladd has done is he has broken up the study of the New Testament based on authorship. So he wants to know, what does Matthew teach in Matthew, right? What does Luke and Acts have to teach us? He stays within the author. What does John have to teach us? So he deals with, you might hear somebody talk about Johannine literature. You guys read that okay? <laughs> Johannine literature. That's just the way scholars like to talk, you know. Johannine literature, or how about this? Pauline literature, right? So when someone says Pauline literature, what are they talking about? All of the letters of Paul. The entire Paul corpus is what they're talking about, right? And so that is a unit of theology within the New Testament. Just Paul's epistles. What's the theology that comes out of Paul's epistles? You know, it's really interesting when you get into this. You take two authors, for example. Let's say you're, you're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and let's say you're looking at the Gospel of John, okay? Well, that's not an abbreviation. That's the whole word, right? <laughs> very, very different Gospels, right? Especially John. John is not a synoptic Gospel. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is a different Gospel. Why? John is so different, right, the way he talks. For example... One of the most important foundational concepts in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is this idea of the kingdom, okay? The kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Parables are all centered around kingdom theology. When you get to John, guess what? The word kingdom vanishes and doesn't almost doesn't even appear in the book. Maybe up two times or something like that. John's favorite, you know, John is the theologian of life, right? So he loves to talk about eternal life. Eternal life. So his concept of the kingdom deals with eternal life. That's the way he likes to talk about it. So what Matthew talks about in terms of the kingdom of God, John talks about that in terms of eternal life. But see, when you do just, let's say, I'm going to take all the Gospels together, you know, uh, you may not see that distinction as clear as you, if, if you would take it author by author and deal with the literature that way. Okay, any questions on all of that? I know you guys memorized all of that, so. So, like, what's the benefit, Emilio, of, like, doing a study, like, by author? What's the benefit of that? Or why would the benefit of that, the benefit of that is, I think, is that you get more, you get stronger conclusions. Um, you know, I was recently um, talking to somebody about the definition of the word world in the Bible. You know, it had to do with Calvinism, limited atonement, all of this. And I said, you know, if you stay with John, you stay with the same theologian, and you look at the way he interprets the word world in the gospel, in his letters, and in Revelation, you get this consistent presentation of cosmos, okay? And that is very helpful, because you know that your definition of cosmos within the same author is very strong. But if you pick one verse out of John and then fly off to Matthew, Matthew may not mean the same thing that John is talking about. You know what I mean? Or justification. You may be reading Paul and how we're justified by faith, and then you do a cross-reference to James and the way he talks about justification, and you have almost opposing thoughts. So that's one of the things that maybe would benefit. Anybody want to add to that or can think of any other benefits of staying within the author? Yes, sir? Well, I was just going to ask, kind of on the, related to that, is there a book that might encompass both? Both kind of like between, say, George Ladd and Carson. That kind of see that way you're not confused if I read this guy and this guy, and they seem to be maybe at odds. Is there kind of a scope where you can say an overview of all of it together? Not really. <laughs> Your next book. <laughs> Tom Schreiner is really okay. good. Um, Tom Schreiner is a good biblical theologian who's done a lot of great stuff. He just wrote a book called The King and His Beauty. And it's all about talking about the glory of God from beginning from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament and how the, the, the idea or the theme of the glory of God and redemption, how that is very prominent in Scripture. And uh, let me just tell you something about biblical theology too, okay? Biblical theology is very interesting because scholars have their own way of going about it. They, they, they focus on certain themes. Um, for example, Schreiner, he's focusing on this idea of the glory of of God, his kingdom, his kingship, his sovereignty as king, okay? But then you take another biblical theologian, let's say like G.K. Beale. G.K. Beale just put out a massive, massive textbook that lots of seminaries are using on biblical theology. His central motif, theme, idea, his central idea is this, that God from the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is teaching us 
what God has done to bring about a new creation. And so what he does is he shows all the way through the Bible, every book, creational themes. How certain people in the Bible are depicted as second, third, fourth Adams. Solomon is a type of Adam who builds a garden and has a vineyard and takes dominion over the things in his realm, in his care. And all of these Hebrew parallels to Genesis, to Solomon, to Genesis, or to, to Adam, to Noah, who is another type of Adam, until you arrive at who? The second Adam. The true second Adam, who is Christ, who ushers in what? The new creation. He ushers in the new creation, right? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. You are new creations in Christ. So new creation language, okay? Those are not just like pithy little Christian statements. Hey man, you're a new creature, <laughs> you know? No, that's a major theological theme of the Bible. <laughs> Anytime you see the word creation, God wants you to go back to Genesis, to think that all the way back in the garden, God had this amazing redemptive plan to create a new creation wherein dwells righteousness, the triumph of, of grace over sin. You know, I said this recently, but theologians call that filis culpa, happy fall that the fall of Adam had a happy component in it because it leads to redemption. It leads to the glory of God. It leads to the new creation. It leads to salvation in Christ. So even in the fall, we're seeing pictures of redemption already. So this is one way of conceiving of that. And a lot of the themes that they use interact with one another. Um, this brings up another important subject. So when we're talking about theology, okay, the theology of the Bible, let's say we've done our historical work. Let's say we've done our literary work. We know what genre we're working with. And let's say we're approaching interpretation and theology. The other thing that I think is really important always when you're interpreting the Bible is to interpret it along what's called a redemptive, redemptive historical uh, line, theme, redemptive historical um, theology. Okay? Redemptive historical theology. What does redemptive historical theology mean? Anybody? Anyone? I hate to sound like that, redeem his people. that movie. But, huh? To redeem his people. To redeem his people. Okay. So... When you interpret the Bible with a redemptive, historic, hermeneutic, or theology, what you're saying is the whole Bible, the whole Bible, okay, is one harmonious story of God's redemption in Jesus Christ. So this is what theologians call the gospel in the Old Testament. I mean, the, men, at the men's study, we're studying the gospel according to Abraham, right? And what we're learning is that in the life of Abraham, in the story of Abraham, of course, in the covenant of Abraham, we're already, already seeing Christ. We're seeing Christ showing up. Who, who was there this Saturday? Scott, you were there. 
Can you remember anything that we pointed out about Abraham and Christ? Well, I mean, just, if anything, alone, just a covenant that was made. Okay. You know, according to Christ. Yeah, that's the high point, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the high point, that, that, that God made a covenant with Abraham. That covenant is about Jesus Christ. So going all the way back to the patriarchal time in redemptive history, we are talking about Jesus Christ. You see, what that does in redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is really what I should have put here, before you get to theology, the hermeneutics of interpreting the Bible redemptively and historically means that you unify the Bible. The Bible is one book. It is one story. It is a unified message. And you know what, what I like about, really what I like about this, is it means that there is ultimately one author to the Bible. Who is that? Not, not Scott. Final question. <laughs> Scott raises his hand like, no. And then he goes like this. I was like, I'm confused. You raise your hand and then you're shaking your head. Well, I, I had a question before you asked your question, but I'll talk. When you deal with things like, when people talk literal historical. Yes, sir. How does that oppose redemptive historical? Meaning that, you know, when you see, you know, people that you respect, theologians, pastors like MacArthur, how do you deal with, you know, because they wouldn't say Christ is removed from the Old Testament, but where's the tension there between when, when he says he's literal and we say we're redemptive? It's very simple. They would say, whenever Christ is not explicitly mentioned, you cannot preach him into the text. So Leviticus chapter 1, because it doesn't mention Jesus Christ, should the sermon should not be about Jesus Christ. I could not disagree more. Leviticus chapter 1 is all about Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's all about how, if you read Leviticus chapter 1, I mean, just go there real quick. Leviticus chapter 1, verse, especially, I mean, just even that first literary unit. Um, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, okay? Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock, if his, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male, without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. I mean, just right there. That's what I would preach. If I had a chance to preach Leviticus, I would preach verses 1 through 3, and the focus would be how Jesus Christ justifies us in the presence of God. You see... Anytime you're reading the New Testament and you're reading about Jesus' blood, you're reading about Jesus' atonement, you're reading about the cross, his sacrifice, what does John the Baptist call Jesus? The Lamb of God. Where did he get this idea that God has a lamb? Huh? From the Levitical system. That God is into sacrificing lambs. And there is a prototypical lamb of God in the Bible. 
And it's none of the lambs that existed in the Levitical system in the institutions of Israel. As the book of Hebrews tells us, those things, those lambs, those goats, those rams, they cannot take away sin. They were always a shadow, foreshadowing, looking forward to as a memorial, if you would, of the real Lamb of God that can take away the sin of the world. And so how would I preach that? Sure, I would do my 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 grammatical, historical, grammatical, who asked that question? Scott. I would do the historical, grammatical, hermeneutic, but I wouldn't stop there. Yes, I would talk about the time of this Leviticus. Yes, I would talk about what does the tent of meeting mean? Yes, I might even describe the tent of meeting. I might, I might bring out the significance and what was a burnt offering in, in the history of Israel? What is an offering for? And get into the real historical details. And you know how they have pictures of the tabernacle, right? And they have all these detailed you know, notes on the tabernacle and stuff. That's great. But as the authors of the New Testament tell us, you have not thought about the tabernacle until you've thought about Christ. So in the same way, I would say this tent of meeting, folks, is all about Jesus Christ. That one day God himself would tabernacle with his people. That he would dwell among us. By the way, when you get to the very end, you get to the end of history, we are in the new heavens and the new, we're in eternity. The climax of that picture, God says, is that he is dwelling in the midst of his people. You see, that language goes all the way back to the tabernacle. It goes all the way back to the temple. It goes all the way back to the covenants that he made with his people. Jeremiah, speaking even of the new covenant, right? I'll be their God they shall be my people, right? I will dwell in the midst of them. The whole Bible, you guys, is all about how God is working out his redemptive purposes all the way down the line, every single book of the Bible, every single epoch of time, every single redemptive act, like the Exodus, like the flood, like the building of the temple, like the exile, like the captivity, all of those redemptive episodes are all about how they point to Christ. I mean, Jacob has a weird dream about a ladder. What does that have to do with anything? We're talking about a guy's dream about a ladder going into heaven. Well, we know now that story in Genesis, where is that, Genesis 28, is about Jesus Christ and nobody else. That's why when you get to talking about biblical theology, I'm convinced that as New Covenant believers, we have to interpret our Bibles responsibly with the knowledge that you now have so that you go back to the Old Testament and you're no longer reading just Sunday school lessons. You're no longer just reading moral stories about how to be, a bit, you know, Moses is just how to be a better leader <laughs> under pressure. No, it's not. Exodus is about Christ. The New Testament stresses that Jesus would perform his own exodus. And Jude even talks about, especially if you've got an ESV, that Jesus is the one that led the people out of, out of Egypt. Just amazing, you guys. Every, every aspect of your Bible is stained with the blood of Christ, if you would. 
The footsteps of Jesus, you can detect it all along the way, everywhere you go. I mean, we we're just reading about Abraham, right? He had to go to Egypt. He went to Egypt because the text says there was a famine in the land. That's it. That's all it says. Famine in the land. The next scene, Abraham's in Egypt. Why does the author take the time to write about that? Why does, why does God in his sovereign decrees, why does he ordain that Abraham goes to Egypt in that story, in that way? I'll tell you why. It's because of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Egypt, there is a big potential that the promise will not happen. The promise that God gave to Abraham in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, I don't know, but you pick up the book of Genesis and you're reading what's going on in Egypt and Sarah is being taken away by the Pharaoh into his harem. <laughs> Wait a minute. If Abraham loses Sarah, what happens to the seed? It's gone. It's gone. So God wants us to follow the redemptive story. That's what it is. He wants to see that there is a plot behind the plot, and the historical grammatical will not get you there. It won't tell you that, because you're right. The, the, the words don't say Jesus. It doesn't say this is about Christ, but now we know that it's about Christ, so we can go back and read our Bibles responsibly. Any questions on that? I know that's pretty controversial, so. Well, I mean, even when Jesus says that all of the scriptures speak about him, why, I mean, it, it seems like that's so overlooked with that strict interpretation only of the Old Testament, and it's almost like you're trying to remove a little bit of the work to try to actually figure out what Jesus Christ has to do with in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. No, I was, I've been asked before uh, at work, you know, do I take the Bible literally? And my first response is yes, but then I qualify by saying as much as it's meant to be taken literal. That's right. So if they say, well, so you believe Jesus is a door, then I ask them, what do you mean by door? <laughs> you know, obviously not a wooden or metal door. So I want to ask them. So I still feel comfortable saying, yes, I take it literally. That's right. I think people will try and say, oh, you mean, you know, you take Adam and Eve literal, of course, because I believe that's, it is literal. So I don't always, if I'm talking maybe to an unbeliever, I don't always go into literal or redemptive. I just say. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's only so much you can do with right. somebody that doesn't have the mind of Christ and doesn't have the spirit of God. We're going to be talking about that a little bit today. But, I mean, if you just look at Ezekiel 37, for example, I mean, I was just, I'm not advocating this, but I was playing like Bible roulette, you know, just wherever my Bible opened up to, I was going to read it. <laughs> and we're at the prayer meeting. Uh, we're at the prayer meeting, uh, Robert, right? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> while Robert was praying, I was, I was taking notes um, out of this passage of Scripture because I couldn't believe it. I was in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 24. And I just opened up my Bible and I read about Jesus and Ezekiel. I was like, this is great. <laughs> you know, I'd never done this before, right? Verse 24, my servant David, that's Jesus. 
David's been dead for hundreds of years. How's God talking about his servant David? He says he will be king over them. So God is going to resurrect David to rule over his people? Of course not. David is a typological king. His kingdom is a typology. It's prefiguring the king of kings. And so I believe that when Ezekiel says this, gives this prophecy, that he's talking about Christ. Look at this. He is the servant king who shepherds. And they will all have one shepherd. I don't know about you guys, but the ultimate servant king shepherd in the Bible is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. When he said that, he was referring to Psalm 22, the good shepherd, which of course would have been blasphemy in the ears of many people. Hey, that was talking about Yahweh. You're attributing that to yourself. Well, he is the good shepherd. And so then the trick is to read this and try to figure out, okay, what is this talking about? How, you know, this is all talking about God unifying his people. And I don't take this, I don't take this to mean that God is going to literally unify the tribes of Israel and that that's going to be the fulfillment of that. I, I personally don't think that's what that means. I think, especially if you look at the new covenant, when Judah and Israel are mentioned, it's not talking about uh, the tribes of Israel. It's talking about believers coming into the covenant with God because the new covenant is attributed to you. So I know that's really controversial, but um, verse 28, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. See, the climax is God dwelling in the midst of his people. How does he do it? Through Jesus Christ. That's how I would probably preach that passage. You see? Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, so you're saying it says my servant David, so he's referring to Jesus Christ. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, in heaven, David is not going to be reigning on the throne. Right. <laughs> it's so why Jesus. Because David? David, David is. No, David is. David becomes a type in the Bible. So Hosea, Hosea does the same thing. In, uh, uh, what is it, chapter 3? Hosea does the same, pretty much the same exact thing, just a smaller book. Hosea chapter 3 says that basically in the last days, after the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So David is going to reappear in the last days and people will stream to him? Like literal David? Like Bathsheba David? No. Of course not. Christ David. David, the son. The, that's why Jesus said, how is it possible for David to call him both son and Lord? It's because David himself was a type of the ultimate Davidic king. Yes, sir? Uh, I was just going to say, is it maybe a little <coughs> easier to say that based on their earthly role to explain uh, Christ's uh, everlasting role is why he would, why he would, you know, name that name. So David, we know, was a king, and because we know that ultimately we're dealing with types and shadows, that he's going to use an earthly understanding so that you can get a, a picture in your mind of what, what is actually being spoken. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think definitely, you know, these are great pictures, just like the institution is of Israel, right? An earthly, you know, uh, an earthly reality that speaks of some sort of future spiritual reality. You know, God has always done that, which ultimately speaking of a heavenly reality, right? This was blowing my mind. We don't have time to get into this, but think about it. In the book of Hebrews says that everything that the Israelites saw on earth was patterned after an already established heavenly reality. So the literal physical was already being built and fashioned. They were making the curtains and the rings and the poles. They were creating the reality, the antitype of the archetype, which was in heaven. Which is just fascinating because it means from the very beginning, even before time began, God had already this great redemptive purpose, a plan, a scheme to work out all of his salvific purposes in Christ from all eternity. It boggles your mind and <laughs> messes up your theology pretty bad, but that's what it is. That's what Jesus means, I really believe, John chapter 17, when he says, Father, I've accomplished the work that you have given me to do. What was the work that the Father gave him to do? And when did he give that work to him? Not at the incarnation. I believe that's talking about the eternal covenant of redemption where the triune God agrees and makes a sacred pact, a secret agreement, Father, Son, and Spirit, to redeem a people for their own possession. It's really wild, right? That's why. Anyway, so David, yes. And don't forget, from the very beginning, when David is called to be king in 2 Samuel 7, he is also called son. God said, I will be a son to him. So he's already prefiguring the sonship of Christ, even in his Davidic kingdom. Okay, so that's why you see why redemptive historical Theology and hermeneutics is so important. It binds the whole book of, of God together. It presents one unified thought, right? This is the opposite of liberalism. Liberalism is the idea that you have to interpret everything along, you know, just, uh, 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 just according to that author, and you can't use that author with that author. Okay, and and these are their own units of thought, and who knows if they if they conspired when they write when they wrote together, and you know what's going on, you know, it's it's really liberalism is the attempt to take God out of the equation, to say that God did not inspire this, He is not the author above all the authors writing this book through His Spirit, right? While He inspires the authors of Scripture, and so it's beautiful. This. This right here, to me, all this is, is the, the Reformation hermeneutic that I know that you guys have heard of so many times. It's so important, right? The analogy of the faith. The analogy of the faith. When something is analogous, it means it has this inter- Dependence, where it interpenetrates into one another. The analogy of the faith was the reformer's way of saying, hey, God is his own interpreter. Scripture interprets scripture. You want to know what the book of Romans means? Go to Leviticus. <laughs> Some books will force you to do that, like Hebrews. 
You go to Hebrews, you have to go to the Old Testament. You go to Hebrews, you have to go to the Pentateuch to unlock the meaning of many of those passages of Scripture. It is so dense. Remember, I gave you a statistic a long time ago. I don't know if you remember, but there's basically only 12 chapters in the whole Bible that do not have at least one reference to an Old Testament passage. That's amazing. That means almost anywhere you are in the Bible, you are looking at Old Testament. In the New Testament, sorry. You open your New Testament, there's a really, really good chance you are looking at an Old Testament text. Isn't that amazing? It's all one harmonious book. Um, the last thing I had was, boy, I didn't even get to this, you guys. Okay, can I do this real quick? I wanted to give you just some, maybe some tools for study. And the way that I did this is I broke it down between uh, beginner, intermediate, and advanced, okay? So that how do you go about this? So how do you study the Bible? I mean, some of you, many of you have asked me, you know, I want to study the Bible better. I don't know it that well. What do I do? How do I study it? What do I need to buy? What books? What study Bibles? All of that. And so maybe let's talk a little bit about what, what are the books that you should buy in order to study the Bible? So if you know that you're at more of an entry level, you're not ready for some technical commentary, okay? What I would advise you to do is to buy study Bibles. Get, John, hold up your Bible. K-Dub, hold up your Bible, if you can. I know it weighs about 50 pounds. <laughs> okay, John has a MacArthur study Bible, and K-Dub has an ESV study Bible, and he has, what is that? Oh, a Nelson study Bible. We'll forgive you for that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, get it. Look, I'm all about tools. I don't care if they're Arminian, Calvinist, liberal, conservative. Be careful there. I only say liberal because they're not as conservative as I would be with the text, okay? But certainly, you can glean and learn from so many different sources. Study Bibles are great for if you just don't know where to start. Start with that. My personal favorite study Bible is the ESV study Bible. The reason why is it's very technical. Is someone clapping? <laughs> Robert. The ESV study Bible is my favorite because it's compiled by like 40 different scholars. And these are top-notch scholars, and they don't all fully agree. And I think that's good. I think it's good to get a little eclecticism in there. If you just have one monolithic presentation, um, I don't know that you're going to get the full exposure to, to Christian scholarship like you should. You know, some people might debate me on that, but whatever. You know, I just think the ESV is great. It's a very good uh, study Bible because of the tools it has, the maps, the pictures. I mean, it just has amazing resources in there. And then I would also suggest that you, that you have one-volume commentaries on the whole Bible and on the New Testament. Like John MacArthur, he has one volume on the whole New Testament. Matthew Henry, there's a concise, I know he's written like six volumes, but there's a concise one volume on the whole Bible by Matthew Henry. But I put... Challenge, the, uh, beginner's challenge, because it's not just enough to stay at a beginner's level, okay? You got to challenge yourself so that you're not a beginner all the time, so that you go further, you know, the, I mean, come on, the basic premise of the Christian life is growth, right? We're called to grow, to bear fruit, to grow in grace and grow in knowledge, Second Peter 3, 16 or 18. 
But um, how do you grow then? I would say, I would say this, and you guys tell me if you have a better idea, okay? I would say if you're a beginner and you have study Bibles, great. But I would also challenge you to pick up a single volume commentary on one book of the Bible, um, like MacArthur's commentary on the book of Philippians. Read the whole commentary from beginning to end. That's a good level at which to interact with a commentary. And why I like MacArthur, why I, why I didn't recommend like a Kent Hughes, is because MacArthur is just saturated in scripture. And that's what you really need, especially early on, that's what you always need. But that you need that right now as a, as a new beginner and on a beginner level. You just need to be saturated with the Bible, you know? Uh, so that's kind of what I would, uh, that's what I would advise. The ESV on the very back has a whole collection of articles that you can read. You can read articles on redemptive historical hermeneutics in the ESV. It's just amazing. Biblical theology, systematic theology. There's apologetics articles in the back. It's great. Um, now, on a more intermediate level, what I would say is people that they've, They've done the, the single volume. They've done the Bible study. They've read, maybe they've already read one commentary before. Then I would say what you need to, what you need to be interacting with is something like an expository commentary, maybe on the level of William Hendrickson. Because William Hendrickson is both expositional and exegetical. There's a little bit of both. There's ex expositional level commentary, and then there's also... There's also more technical stuff in there that will challenge you. And I will also say, if you're at an intermediate stage, pick up a commentary by Tyndale. The Tyndale New Testament or Old Testament commentary. Um, I would suggest like a commentary like uh, Donald Guthrie on Hebrews, you know, and read that at a more intermediate level. And then your challenge would be to dig deeper with a different level commentary. And I would recommend that you would read Pillar, the Pillar New Testament commentaries, because they're good scholarly commentaries without um, Greek. You don't have to know the languages to pick up a Pillar commentary and read it, but you're getting the same level of scholarship. So if you're not in Greek, it's just Greek, you know, I'm not gonna, some commentaries, you know, they're full of Greek, right? And it discourages people. They look at that and they're like, well, I'm not going to read that. Well, pillar is kind of like the perfect blend between the two. The Greeks in the footnotes, if you ever want to just look at that, they transliterate so that you can at least know what the word is and you can pronounce it. But the, 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 the content of the commentary is so good and clear. It's not overly technical. That's what I would say. And I would say that um, for the advanced folks, um, you need to be reading... Uh, commentaries and lexicons. At this point, you need to be interacting with lexicons. You need to be interacting with Greek grammars. That's really what's going to challenge you at a more advanced level of reading. You need to, uh, if you, especially if you want to teach the Bible. I mean, I personally, I personally think you should know Greek if you're going to teach the Bible publicly uh, on, at, at any theological level. I mean, you should have some interaction with the Greek language. Um, it's like John Piper once said, you know, it's like, if you don't know Greek, if you don't know the languages, it's not that you don't want to teach the Word of God. It's not a question of desire anymore. It's a question of possibility. It's simply not possible to teach the Word of God at a certain level without the languages. 
Languages are so important, you know. I've tried, that's why I'm still trying, John. Hebrew. I'm trying. I'm still trying, you know, to pick up a Hebrew grammar and plow away at it because I, I see my need for Hebrew, you know. Um, and uh, so that's really important, okay. Um, let me give you two other uh, resources really quick. Um, so we got about five minutes. Uh, these resources are on... Um, Biblical theologies that you can read, textbooks, uh, biblical theology, and these to me, these are like th these are like the most basic. Okay, and this is really good introduction, you know, like introduction level type stuff. There are two books by Mark Dever. Have you guys seen them? Mark Dever has two books that he's written. I think they're really good. One is called The Message of the Old Testament. The Message of the Old Testament. Amy, you have those books? Yeah. Of course you do. Amy's got more books than I do. I mean, it's just. Uh, unconscionable, but you want to get the message of the Old Testament, promise, promise made. And then the next book is called the message of the New Testament, promise kept. That's the name of the book. So he just kind of focuses on a redemptive historical line that God makes a promise. How simple is that, right? You understand redemptive historical hermeneutics, right? Can you can you can you can you remember promise made, promise kept? Then you've got it, <laughs> right? Because that's really what it is. It's God makes all these fantastic promises in the Old Testament. And what does what does the New Testament say? Second Corinthians one twenty. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean your little Bible promise book, folks. Sorry, I mean God loves you, you know. And he does have a wonderful plan for your life as a Christian. But what that's talking about is God's redemptive promises, the promises he made to the patriarchs, the promises he made to David, the promises he made to Moses, the promises he made to the prophets, those promises, like we read right here in Ezekiel, that king, the King David will reign one day over his people. All of those promises are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Yes, sir. Wondering, would you recommend the website Best Commentaries? Because it has Very good. basically the top Very good. picks of all the Excellent. commentaries. And you got it. The yeah, website is Best Commentaries. Yes, sir. Red Grace Media Bookstore. Yeah, pick up all your books from Red Grace, too. Help us out. Help us out. Okay. Any other questions? Next week, Lord willing, uh, we move on with um, some theology proper, the doctrine of God. So let's, let's pray, and we'll go to worship. <clears throat> Chris, you want to pray for us, brother? Sure. <clears throat> well, Father, we thank you, God, for giving us your word. Father, we thank you for this church, Father, that and we can know that we, as we gather our families together that they're going to the word of God taught, Father, and we thank you for that, God. And um, I pray you protect our church. We thank you that you've opened up our eyes to Christ being the goal of all of your message in your Bible, God. And thank you, God. Oh, yeah. amen. See your son amen. every time we gather, God. Help us to love him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm. Same, y'all are starting to deal Monday night? Cool.